You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Octavio Fernandez y Mostajo. And my name is Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, we're continuing um, a, a conversation that we've been having with lots of different folks around uh, science and theology. We've, we've, we talk to different people at different times who are Christians, who are thinking through these questions. And um, today it was a real privilege to speak with Dr. Dennis Alexander, who's the founding director mm -hmm. emeritus of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion in Cambridge, where he's an emeritus fellow at St. Edmund's College. He has worked in sort of, he's a microbiologist uh, and he's well respected in his field and has published a number of books and been involved in all sorts of different things. Um, and you'll hear him talk about some of the books that he's, um, that he's written. But we talked to him today about uh, evolution and about how we understand the image of God and evolution and then how we understand mm -hmm. the new heavens and the new earth in relation to understandings of um, evolution and all sorts of other different fascinating things and Dr. Alexander has this way of making complex really big questions um, clear and understandable yeah. so um, I'm, I'm not a scientist I'm not someone who can kind of I don't know my brain doesn't always work well that way but it was it was wonderful to have this conversation with Dr. Alexander and I understood it and I think you will too. <laughs> yeah. I'm pumped. Me and Lisa Perini, we're pumped. It was so good. I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. Like, the conversation you're about to listen in or listen to, it's going to be so good. It, it, was, it was great. Dr. Alexander is such a well-respected uh, scientist. He's a microbiologist, like, like Claire said. And not just a uh, uh, really respected scientist, he's also a deep theological thinker. And, and you'll notice that with with his answers and questions from from uh, sinful nature. How do you reconcile sinful nature with evolution? Given the fact that we're so pumped, I think that should be an indicator of a good podcast ahead of you they're coming your way. They're always good, so we just hope you enjoy yet another good podcast from Regent College and our conversation with Dr. Dennis Alexander. Dr. Alexander, welcome to the Regent College podcast. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. We thought um, we thought you were telling us just before we, we started recording about your relationship with Regent and how you've kind of connected with Regent or Regent people over the years. Do you want to give us a bit of a sense of your sort of connections to Regent? Sure. Yes, it goes back a very long way in a sense. It goes back to Jim Houston when he was a don in an Oxford college at a time when I was a student in Oxford studying biochemistry. And mm -hmm. I used to go to the church where he at that time was an elder in that church. And he and his wonderful uh, late wife um, used to have his back for Sunday lunch. So he was very hospitable and his family were very hospitable. So that obviously gave me a wonderful connection with Jim over the years. And we've been mm. in recent contact as well. And of course I have visited Regents doing various things several times over mm -hmm. the years. I think the last time I was there, there was about 10 years ago doing a pastor's conference, something like that anyway. So yeah. there have yeah. been several connections over the years. Oh, it's great. Well, it's lovely to have you. Thanks for staying up on a Friday yeah. night to, to chat with us. What a beautiful way to spend a Friday night. Absolutely. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to talk to you about all sorts of different things, but sort of around um, evolution and how we understand that and different ways that theology interacts with that and what you think about all of those kind of complexities and helping us make sense of some of those things. Um, so why don't, why don't we begin? Actually, Octavio, why don't, you, why don't you kick us off, actually, with our first question? I'll kick us off. Uh, so there's been this, this back and forth between, you know, science and theology. And, and one of the big issues is uh, of of course creation and and the story of Adam and Eve and how do how do we fit the story of Adam and Eve with evolution and and in creation and is there a divide is there a conflict there and that that's sort of the conversation that that always arises when when we're talking about that but uh you actually provide three models for integrating Adam and Eve, the fall and evolution. Could you briefly t start talking about that to, to, to you know, kick us off? 
Sure, yes. It's, of course, quite a, a big discussion. So I'll give you just a few thoughts to kick off a discussion. But I suppose it's important to realize that we shouldn't impose a scientific um, interpretation on the early chapters of Genesis as if they're written in some sort of modern science format that we can then simply mm -hmm. read it off. I think that's the first mm -hmm. point I would want to make. And I guess the second point is to think about what kind of literature the early chapters of Genesis represent. And I've often thought of them as theological essays, so I sort of see them from that kind of perspective. And so then it's also good to remember that the word Adam actually is used in three different ways already, even in the first four chapters of Genesis. So mm. you've got Adam mm. in chapter one, you know, Adam is humankind, clearly. Male and female, he created them, plural, okay? So it's talking about humankind, the whole of humankind made in the image of God. Chapters two and three, then you have a definite article in Hebrew in front of Adam. So the man, the man, the man, the Adam. So clearly that can't be a personal name because in Hebrew they didn't use a definite article in front of personal names. So that mm -hmm. tells us maybe something that's going on there which is a little bit different, maybe a representative man. And then you mm. get to chapter four and suddenly you don't find the definite article and you find the Adam who then... Um, has a lot of, gets married, has lots of kids, okay? So, so we've got these sort of three flavors of Adam, you know? And I think that has to be a bit of the background when we think about, well, how do we relate all that to yeah. anthropology and evolution? And the three models that you mentioned, actually they, they come in various subsets. We won't worry about those, but three general models. The first model, I guess I call it Model A because I'm a scientist and you have to label it with something. But, you know, it, it, it's... It's really not a model, most. It's just saying, well, this is all about theology. We shouldn't uh, really spend time in trying to relate it to anthropology. That's a misuse of the Bible. We shouldn't be doing that. Um, what it's teaching us is the important teaching that all of humankind have fallen. We all have need of salvation. We're all separated from God by our sin and so on. So it's really a purely a theological text. We shouldn't even get into this whole thing mm. of building bridges between if you like, mm. the theology there and the anthropology. So that's model A, if you like. It's a perspective A, let's call it something like that. Model B then is saying, well, yeah, we should have a conversation. What sort of conversation might that be? Well, could it be that during that long evolutionary process of humans, which took place as far as we know in Africa, when, of course, there were many different populations evolving gradually over the years, maybe then there was a slow, gradual emergence of the belief in the one true God and then a response to that belief and maybe a kind of illumination from God in that early human community and then a rejection of the light that had been received. So Model B and the various subsections fairly goes, goes for a sort of gradualist kind of perspective, a gradual yeah. illumination, revelation by God to a human community mm -hmm. way back in Africa at some time in the past. The Model C, which I have to say I sort of prefer, I don't kind of try and defend different models, I just lay them out and say, well, it's up to you, you know, which way do you want to go on this one? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Model C actually uses language that comes from the, the late Reverend John Stott, who was a, a, an evangelical rector of All Souls Lagging Place in London. Mm. And he came up with this language of Homo Divinus, the divine humans. And his idea mm. was, um, well, maybe it is that, you know, the whole thing is not really, the theology is not about evolution at all, but it's about God choosing a community or maybe choosing a couple, let's call them Adam and Eve, the first divine humans who really knew God and had a personal relationship with God. And mm. God revealed himself to them in such a way that, he showed them their responsibilities to care for the earth, to have fellowship with him, to follow his way. If you like, it was a start of God's family on earth. That's sort of the Model C, and that places it then in the Near East, in the ancient Near East, maybe mm. not so long ago. If you like, you could sort of think of those Homo Divinus or Homo Divini, should it be? I'm not a Latin scholar, but, um, <laughs> you know, it should be. They're sort of the progenitors of the Jewish faith in that sense, you know, the very early family of God. So that's the sort of homo divinus idea. Mm -hmm. Those are the three models very briefly laid out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. That is amazing. Th thank you for that. that. That is actually a great place to to start the podcast. I mean, we have it, – it, I mean, I've been listening to, to your lectures, Dr. Alexander, and we can go, you know – 
in so many directions with in all of them would be fascinating let's see let's see how far we can we can get with this uh i wanted to ask you something and we if we're talking about genesis uh, we are, we're talking about uh man being made in the image of god right and that's kind of kind that's kind of like the, one of the uh, big things for christianity but one of the big question is uh what is the image of god How do you how do you understand the image of God? And after you answer that, we're going to talk about Neanderthals and Denisovans and the question of were they also made in the image of God? And if they were, were why are they gone if they were made in the image? And you know, let's it's it's a great conversation. So let's start with how do you understand the image of God? Right. Well, I think the first point I would make there is. In a sense, it's not really important so much what I think about the image of God, but I think it's important what the first readers would have understood in their own particular context. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to go to the ancient Near East. We have to look at the way the image of God language was being used in the by the nations surrounding Israel at that time when Genesis was written. And there we have some very important clues, I think. So if you go to uh, ancient Egyptian literature, if you go to... Uh, some texts in the Mesopotamian literature um, and those nations surrounding Israel, we do find the phrase image of God. And what's really interesting there is that the phrase is used about kings and occasionally about priests. Mm. And so when people would have looked at that text in Genesis 1, when they would have read it for the first time, immediately what would have come to their minds is the idea of kings and priests. And what's really okay. revolutionary about the idea in Genesis chapter 1 is, of course, it's used to the whole of humankind. It's saying, no, this is not about kings and priests. It's not about your dictators, as they were. They were real dictators at that time in the surrounding nations. No, this is about the whole of humankind, male and female, being made the image of God. So all our kings, all our priests, all are given this amazing status in the sight of God mm. as having dignity and responsibilities to care for the earth and to have relationship with God. So I think that, to me puts a very important, in, interesting light upon the whole question of what we mean by the image of God. I think if you go mm. back, especially to the last, well, the last couple of centuries, very often the idea of the image of God by theologians was seen more like a list of things that distinguish us, yeah. humankind, from animals. Mm -hmm. yep. And I think that list is important, but we've, we've begun to realize, you know, a lot of we have like tool, use of tools and all kinds of social structures. You know, a lot of animals have similar kinds of things. There are many intelligent animals, and, and so forth. We could go on, you know, comparing animals and humans in that way. I don't think that list, I think the list is important, but I don't think it's really what the text is about in Genesis chapter 1. I think it's much more to do with this exalted status that God in his grace and wisdom is given to humankind. We've made a mess of it, of course. We haven't done you know, what right. the image of God is all about. We've really made a mess of the earth. We could talk a lot about that. But still, that is the status. And I think the important point, just to um, follow up on that comment, is that therefore it doesn't actually depend upon our genes or upon the color of our skins, about our educational status, mm. about what country we're from. So that status, that glorified status that God has given to humankind, being made the image of God, is for everybody, okay? Every mm -hmm. single person including those who maybe are unable for whatever reason to be able to practice its fullness to much degree. But, you know, they still have that status before God. And I think that's very, very important. Another topic when we get into genetic engineering, how much we want to change people, that kind of thing. Right. It's an important right. element in that whole discussion mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and what do you think? You're talking about uh, homo sapiens at this point, make, you know, kings and queens and and. And, and what you were explaining, uh, what the Asian Near East concept of image of God is, or would you extend that to, you know, a little back, uh, you know, uh, 20,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, including, you know, uh, Neanderthals and, and Denisovans and whatnot? Well, we clearly don't really know the answer to that question yeah. um, because uh, the, bio, the biblical text certainly doesn't mention Neanderthals and it doesn't mention mm -hmm. Denisovans. And of course, we've only known about the so-called Denisovans for the past you know, less than 10 years, okay, so it's a pretty recent kind of discovery, and just for people mm -hmm. who may not know about the Denisovans, um, that name derives from the Denisova Cave um, in Siberia, in a very cold place where 
a finger bone was discovered some years ago, which still had in it the DNA, which is well preserved sufficiently mm. to get a very good sequence. Actually, there have been now been several genome, genome sequences of the DNA from denisovans. We don't know anything about denisovans. You know, we we know their mm -hmm. sequence, and we can derive something about them from that. And we know that they were first cousins of Neanderthals, but we don't know. We have no skulls or anything really mm -hmm. from them. We don't know much about them at all. Of course, that's different for Neanderthals. We know a lot about the Neanderthals. And I guess the question then comes up, given the Bible doesn't tell us anything about Neanderthals or whether they made the image of God, but we can still ask the question, well, is there any evidence they had religious rituals or religious beliefs? And the answer is not really. We don't really have that. Even the question of burial of the dead is controversial. Uh -huh. I think until a few years ago, it used to be widely accepted that Neanderthals did bury their dead, but now I think the data's got a little more um, foggy. There are some people who think they did and other people who don't think that. And it, the reason is it's simply sometimes hard to tell whether right. it's burial of the dead. And, of course, even burial of the dead is very different from funerals, isn't it? So if you can mm -hmm. show it's a funeral, then that's got definite religious connotations. But it's right. simply getting ready of, rid of a body, you know, just getting rid of the body. You don't want to see the body, so you put earth over it or leaves or something. Mm -hmm. And that's something different. That doesn't tell you necessarily they had religious beliefs. So all those questions come into this discussion, I think. Because yeah. I think if the Neanderthals were made in the image of God, you might have expected that they would have sufficient language and rationality and to have community, to have fellowship with God and to know God and to have... Mm -hmm religious rituals and so on, but we, we really don't have evidence for that. Mm. So at the moment, as far as I can see from the evidence we have and from the biblical um, evidence, if you like, as well, it's really anatomically modern humans who are made in the image of God, as far mm. as I can tell. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because a, a lot of theologians talk about a moment in history it's a moment where the image of God happened and they discuss like when was that? In what you were talking about, uh, 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 Dr. Stott, that would say there was a group that was chosen and God was revealed to them. And maybe that would be the moment when, you know, uh, th that image of God was was there. But, but it, I mean, it, it's, it's a big discussion that we're not going to, you know... <laughs> We're not going to we solve write, it here, yeah. but it's, it's, I mean, I should do a little plug here, you know, um, for, for a book, you know, that came out that I wrote originally in the first edition, 2008, but a second edition came out in 2014. So, um, it's called creation or evolution. Do we have to choose? And there I mm -hmm. go into this whole discussion in some detail and go into the various models and how do we relate mm. the anthropology to the biblical texts and so forth. So I just, do a little plug yeah. there for those who might want to follow up on some of these. Dis yeah, go a bit deeper on those because, yeah, there's definitely – it sort of raises raises lots of different questions, doesn't it, yeah. in all different directions the more you think into it. And so one of the ones that comes up for me then is that this whole idea of sinful nature. And so then how do we understand the sinful nature and humanity's, humanity's kind of propensity toward sin? Um, is, it, is that just kind of our inherited – kind of animal instinct sort of thing or how have you how do you understand that in relation to to evolution that's a very good question and as you said it's a, it's a pretty big question and of mm -hmm. course there are different mm -hmm. views on that amongst christians i'm not going to say that i have the, the final answer or anything i just give oh. my mm. opinion and perspective on this one but i think it does go back doesn't it to how we understand those first humans made in the image of God, the first humans who really knew God personally. So if we go with the Homo Divinus model, this idea of God choosing a couple maybe um, to come into fellowship with himself and revealing himself to them in a special kind of way, but then we have the fall, the great, you know, the story of the fall, of course, in, uh, in the early chapters of Genesis. And I would see that as a central point of that in Genesis chapter 3 is it's really a broken relationship with God. And if you read Genesis chapter 3, it's one of the most vivid descriptions of the results of sin that you get anywhere mm. in the Bible, really. Because there you get separation from the tree of life. And you get this separation from the life of God. Mm. You get this, um, this alienation of woman from her own, as, that, as they would see it then, her own functionality in life, if you like. You would see mm. this alienation of the man from the ground and so forth. So it's a story of alienation, if you want to put it mm. in modern terms, a story of sin, a story of separation from God. 
And to me, therefore, the fall is really centers around, the original fall centers around this broken relationship with God. And then the whole mm. rest of the Bible is telling us how that relationship is restored and ultimately mm. and finally and fully in Christ mm-hmm. and through the cross. And then you can come to you know Romans chapter 5 and Paul's take on this, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, how are we made mm. alive in Christ? We're not given physical life when we are made alive in Christ. We have physical life already. It's part of right. the creation. Yeah. But we are mm. given spiritual life and so on. You work your way through Romans, and it seems to me, yeah, we, the rest, restoration of that relationship is a spiritual restoration with profound consequences for our future and for eternity. Mm-hmm. And so I would go back and think, well, the fall looks to me like a spiritual fall. You know, I mean, Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are told very firmly by God on the day, the yom in Hebrew, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely mm-hmm. die, you know, the fruit of the knowledge mm-hmm. of the tree of the good of good and evil. And then at Genesis chapter 3, they eat of the fruit, and uh, they don't drop dead on the day, do they? Interesting use of the word day there, but they, yeah. they are spiritually <laughs> yeah. alienated from God. They're separated from God. So it's a very real fall, I think, and a very real disobedience. They're putting themselves mm-hmm. in the middle of their lives where God belongs, I guess, that, and they're choosing what's good and what's evil. I guess that's one understanding of that tree very figurative, powerful figurative language. And so that's where the spiritual breakup between humankind and God comes in. And then the whole New Testament is about how is that relationship restored? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the sinful nature itself, you know, uh, the the understanding that right after Adam and Eve, you know, bit the, the, the fruit, boom, everything changed. Like we we now you know we we cannot stop sinning because of that. At that moment, that's when that happened. How do you how do you understand that? Right. Well, I think you put it very well. You know, with the boom. You know, especially. <laughs> you know, I sometimes think of it like a you know, just this pure metaphor metaphorical language, but thinking like a nuclear explosion. You know, where the bomb goes off, boom. You know, and then mm. you get the uh, the nuclear fallout. The radiation goes around the world. So somehow there's a kind of radiation of sin, thinking theologically here in this picture language. You know, the radiation of sin goes around the world and somehow contaminates the whole of humankind in such a way that we all are separated from God in that way. And I think Mm -hmm. that's why the definite article in front of Adam actually is quite important here. And I'll Mm. explain what I mean. So if we take the the Adam in Genesis 2 and 3 as being representative of the whole of humankind, Mm. Then we have this sort of idea of federal headship, which goes way back into the reform literature, actually, quite a bit. And the whole concept of, of Adam as being the representative of humankind. Mm-hmm. And therefore, as Adam falls, it's as it were, we all fall with him. You know, we all fall together yeah. with Adam in that sense. And so that's where I think I would start that conversation and just mm-hmm. also use, sometimes I use the Again, just a picture language, but having lived in Turkey, and Tur- the modern Republic of Turkey was founded by Ataturk. Ataturk means father of the Turks, okay? Mm-hmm. So the Turkish population today are not inherited genetically from Ataturk, okay? But of right. course they are, as it were, inherited politically, and in terms of the Republic of Turkey, they all have this homogeneity in that sense because they all have... Ataturk is the father of the Turks. He's the one who really established the modern Republic of Turkey. So that gets us somewhere, I think, in the, the kind mm. of thinking in that direction mm. of what mm. we mean by federal he- headship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I'm well, also makes, thinking, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm guessing you would also say that, like, before the homo divinus, people still had, you know, the tendency towards violence, tendency towards lying, tendency to, towards et cetera, et cetera. It, 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 that didn't, you know, all of a sudden appear right after the Adam, uh, you know, bit the fruit and disobeyed God. That's right. So I think, you know, we have to distinguish carefully, I think, between sin, which is disobedience to God and putting ourselves in place of God and our own selfish desires. And we have to distinguish that with just our old, you know, our normal nature. Okay, so I don't know, you can take sexual desire, you know, Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. But it has to be mm. channeled, doesn't it, in the right direction for Christians. So Christians believe that 
sexual desire should only be expressed fully within the married relationship, right? And so mm -hmm. and that's what the early chapters of Genesis are about as well, by the way. So it's part mm -hmm. of the creation ordinance we have there in the early chapters of Genesis. Or we think of Jesus, I suppose, um, he got angry, didn't he? So we remember how when people were buying and selling in the temple, and he got pretty upset, you know, he got a whip and he drove them out and mm -hmm. tipped all their tables mm -hmm. over, okay? He got angry, <laughs> but it, I would say we would call that righteous anger, I guess, you know? Um, and so it's a justified anger. It's a use of, if you like, a human emotion expressed in a righteous way for righteous mm. ends. And I guess, is it in Ephesians 4, isn't it? Is it Ephesians 4, 26? But the Apostle Paul says, you know, be angry but sin not, okay? Mm, and yeah. that's something to think about, isn't it? So sometimes Christians are told we should be we should be angry about injustice. You know, we should be angry about poverty. We should be angry about, yeah, just all the wrongs in the world. We should want to put them right. So I think mm -hmm. what we see there is more a channeling of our human, natural human emotions, mm -hmm. uh, but in a God-glorifying direction that really mm -hmm. is there to heal the world and to help the world. That's mm -hmm. the way I would see that, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and sort of like that whole kind of thing of this progression of wanting us to, to see the world healed and to see things made new and restored and kind of our, the Christian understanding of this new heavens and a new earth. Um, how, do you, how do you understand that uh, and the future resurrection give, and the, that it's the, it's the um, renewing of heaven and earth, given that our life as we knew it took billions of years to get to the place that mm -hmm. it is now. So how do we? How, do, how have you come to understand that as a as a scientist, as a microbiologist? Yeah, well, just thinking about the billions of years, I think um, one thing to think about is just how costly is our own existence, not yeah. only us as anatomically modern humans, but you know, all living things. I mean, to be alive is costly. You know, think of food chains. Think of yeah. ninety nine percent of all the species that ever lived going extinct. Think mm. of the suffering that we have. Think of pain. Wow, this is a costly life, okay? So being here, existing in our particular life forms, if you like, is a very costly mm -hmm. existence. So clearly that history has been incredibly important um, to bring us to the place where God wants us to be with these capacities we have to have love mm -hmm. and to choose freely or not to enter his kingdom. So then we think about that future kingdom you just flagged up there. I guess as far as resurrection of bodies is concerned, we, we only have... Like we say in science language, N equals one, you know? I mean, we only have one example, don't we? And that's a resurrected Christ, okay? I mean, Lazarus doesn't come in the same category. He was raised from the dead, but he died again. So that's not really what we're about here. We're into the resurrected Christ who burst from the tomb on the third day. And then clearly he was not made of carbon as far as we came out. I mean, he appeared in locked rooms and he suddenly appeared. And the gospel writers make a point of saying, hey, it was a locked room, okay? And they were frightened. Mm. They were amazed. How could he appear suddenly to, in front of them in a locked room and so on? So I think although he ate fish, he demonstrated he wasn't a ghost. He was clearly mm. a resurrection body, which is a mm. different kind of body from our physical bodies, and that maybe gives a hint about mm. our future resurrection bodies. And then also he ascended into heaven, and then he was taken up into the clouds, and then he went into this other dimension that we don't understand that we just understand by the language of heaven. So now as we think of the new heavens and the new earth, I guess for all Christians have this wonderful hope and assurance of the future resurrection of our bodies mm. for all eternity when we move out of time, at least this sort of time we're in right now, time as we know it, we move into resurrection bodies that are clearly not carbon-based as far as we make out from the forerunner, Christ himself, who could go through walls in his body. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to be in some new transformed body according to that understanding and therefore i guess we have to think of the new heavens and the new earth as being you know god's very um, striking new creation it's something that god breaks in and where it's a transformative um change in the whole created order such as we know mm. at the moment mm -hmm. now but having said that in the next breath i would like to say also, there is continuity with the present order. And I think that right. comes through pretty strongly as well, you know. In other words, it's not something totally divorced from what we're in right now. Mm -hmm. um, we see mm -hmm. that, I suppose, hinted at quite strongly in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation, where we see, you know, the kings of the earth are bringing their riches 
into the New Jerusalem, into this fulfilled mm. kingdom of God. Mm. And I think that kind of gives a hint, doesn't it, that maybe it's the case that all the wonderful, the best art, the best acts of kindness, the most wonderful things um, mm -hmm. in creation mm -hmm. here in this present created order will be brought into the future um, kingdom and there will be transformed in the new heavens and the new earth. And so mm -hmm. it will be rep represented mm -hmm. there, but in a recognizable form, but in some purified, transformed form, devoid mm. of sin, but it's just really in its fulfilled ultimate form. Mm -hmm. So I, I like that mm -hmm. picture, you know, there's continuity, yeah. but transformation. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think yeah. often in yeah. the Christian church and theology, the pendulum has swung a bit, you know, between those two, and somehow we have to keep yeah. Um, yeah. the balance, I think, between those two mm -hmm. concepts. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Sorry for interrupting your podcast, but Claire Perini has something really, really important that she wants to share with you. For the last number of weeks and months, you will have had a little interruption from Octavio and I with me trying to say rgnt.net forward slash give. And the reason for that is um, that we love hearing from people who are enjoying and appreciating the podcast. We love hearing that. And we love hearing that you enjoy it so much that you want to give Regent a little bit of a donation to say thanks. And so this is an invitation to continue doing that or to do that for the first time uh, to allow us to continue to keep having these really good conversations with people all over the world about all sorts of things, about the good, beautiful kingdom of God and how it plays itself out in the life of everyday Christians. So if you would like to give a donation to Regent College, to say thanks for the podcast, Octavia and I would be delighted. You can do that at rgnt.net forward slash give. And please, if you'd leave a donation, uh, write in the comment box over there that the podcast sent you. Enjoy, Enjoy the, the rest, rest of, of our the conversation. conversation. Has, has believing that ever been problematic for you as a really respected scientist and microbiologist like has that has that kind of kind of holding these places holding all of these things together as a scientist as a christian has that ever have you has it ever got you into any trouble have people made fun of you what's that what's that been like oh i, I don't think about well the scientific community is a very tolerant community i find right and mm. you know maybe i've just been fortunate i've you know oh, worked really? overseas in the middle east for 15 years in the in mm. the sciences and then, of course, back in this country for quite a few decades, I've always found the sign of a community very tolerant, mm. partly because it's very diverse. It just represents, yeah. you know, the society where mm -hmm. uh, one is located mm -hmm. on, on average. And so in my lab, you know, I can, thinking back, I've had loads of atheists, I guess, and loads of agnostics and loads of people from other religions and quite a few Christians as well and just everybody, mm. you know. And, and right. so I think... Postmodern culture is influencing. So I think when people hear about when I was in this active scientific community, I'm retired out of it now, but when I was in it and people would hear I go to church or, you know, I believe in God, you know, they'd sort of treat it like I was playing golf, you know. If you play golf, it's right. very nice for you. you know? <laughs> yeah, that's oh, good. You know, I, well, yeah. I play golf and you believe in Just God. Just on Sundays, you know? yeah. On Sundays, you know. So, you know. so I think on the whole it was pretty polite. I mean, now, of course, it depends a lot on where you are in your scientific career and if you're head of a program, you're head of a, de of a department mm -hmm. and right. you're responsible for people's promotion and their jobs, they will yeah. be <laughs> a little bit polite to you anyway, even though behind your back they might be saying all kinds of things. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> but that comes yeah. into it as well. You know, you want to be careful, don't you, about saying anything particularly nasty about somebody who, who's over you in some way. But I have to yeah. say that yeah. I found the relationships good. So I... I very rarely have I ever been mocked for my Christian faith. Just occasionally you get the occasional sarcastic comment or, mm -hmm. you know, how can you believe that kind of stuff? But to be honest, it's pretty rare, so yeah. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And often that for people who are not scientists who haven't been in the scientific community, they're a bit they're quite surprised by that comment, actually. Yeah. They think of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hedgens and Sam Harris and the New Atheists and all these people. They think somehow the scientific community must be you know, very stridently atheistic, and, and really it's not. It's really not. And to be quite honest mm. and frank, um, my secular colleagues would often think of these rather extreme atheists 
as a little bit um, embarrassing. Why would you mm. want to be extreme like that? And mm-hmm. and mm. is that giving us, you know, is it giving the scientific community a bad name? You know, to sort of be so right. extreme. And certainly yeah. in my own British culture, the worst thing you can be is to be extreme. That's the worst thing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you're British, then whatever it's you are, you mustn't be extreme, yeah. okay? It doesn't matter what you are, but don't be extreme, okay? So be very moderate. Be and, moderate, yeah. you know. So <laughs> that kind of culture comes into the discussion as well. Okay. Yeah, totally. But no, as far as the, yeah, so it's, uh, as far as, you know, the, the future life after death and the belief in the resurrection of Christ, I mean, as a scientist, I... I grew up into science as a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 13. And so really I've grown up with my Christian faith and my science together, hand in Mm. hand, as it were. And so quite honestly, I've never seen any conflict in that way or Mm. no particular, Mm. I mean, obviously people don't rise from the dead, you know, fair point. (laughs) But I mean, you don't have to be a scientist to know that. (laughs) They knew that well enough in the first century. I mean, it's nothing really to do with science. It's more to do with, you know, what you believe about miracles and what God can do and so on. Yeah. Right, the transcendent. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of scientists and theologians have been reconciling creation and evolution. And I rarely hear this reconciling of of our future eschatology and evolution and biology. And so I want to ask those those things because I I seldom hear those those, uh, uh, kind of conversations at the other end, right? At the, Mm -hmm. at the, at the other end, normally it's at the beginning, but mm-hmm. what about the end? Because mm-hmm. we believe some some amazing, interesting, crazy stuff for the end, and we we seldom talk about that. So I wanted to talk about that. I mean, it's. I, I mean, just add I, in I'm there, gonna, by the way, just to interrupt. But you know, it's interesting, isn't it? That I mean, there've been some phases in more kind of liberal theology, where really that eschatology has got mixed up with the science, and therefore you get into. I mean, there was a phase where some theologians thought. You know, evolution will carry on. Well, think of Théard de Chardin, you know, in, the, in Catholic theology, rather a famous, um, rather controversial theologian at his time, anyway, within mm. Catholic mm-hmm. theology, but, you know, who really felt that evolution will proceed to the so-called omega point, you know, where there'll somehow be, you know, we will meet, we will become, meet the mind of God. And so it's kind mm-hmm. of evolutionary story of eschatology. But I think that's pretty much, I don't know if there's anyone who really believes that now, I don't think so, partly mm. of course because of what we now know about human evolution actually, so it doesn't really mm. fit with the science, so that doesn't yeah. get you very far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know you personally don't believe that, and that's a segue to the other question that we have, because you argue that human evolution has stopped, and when I heard that I was like, Oh, what? Mm, interesting. Please tell me more. And, and so, can you give us? Can you tell us about that and give us your reasons why you believe human evolution has stopped? Right. Well, we have to be careful of our language here again. It depends what you mean by stopping. Okay. Stop. So, evolution. Okay. At one level, evolution of every species is going on all the time. Simply by that, we mean that if you look at the population genetics, then mm-hmm. if you look at human population genetics, you'll see changes all the time going on. And clearly there are some genes in the human population that are under natural selection pressures. They are being selected for um, in particular parts of the world. And very often the reason these days is because of particular pathologies that are prevalent in certain parts of the world and not in other parts. And you Mm -hmm. can detect that by looking at the human population. If you do enough sequencing of their genes in that part of the world, you can see how those genes are being selected for because they give you a little bit more immunity um, quite a hot topic right now with coronavirus, of course, but mm. you know they will give you a little more protection against certain uh, pathogens. And I mean, if you go backwards and just look backwards in evolutionary time, there, there are just many, many examples of of that. I can give you examples if you like. So that's just evolution in the genetic variation level. Okay, we all have genetic variation. We all. Mm-hmm distinguished from each other by actually about 0.5% on average of our genome. It's quite a bit, actually. Quite a big segment of our genome is is variant between us on average all around the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, so when, but then if we say, well, if we're talking about evolution in terms of becoming a different species, then I would say human evolution doesn't have much um, chance of getting in that direction. I'll, I'll give you three reasons why. Mm. No more reasons, actually. I'll give, I'll give three. 
One, actually, interestingly, is because of the teaching of Jesus. So Jesus tells us we should okay. love our neighbor as ourselves. And if you go back in the history of mission hospitals around the world, for example, you've got loads of people obeying the teaching of Jesus to go out and heal the sick, to go out and care mm -hmm. for the poor and the needy. And so what's been the impact and what is the continuing impact of healthcare services around the world? Well, clearly one of the good impacts we all delight in is to keep people of reproductive age who are alive until they can reproduce, okay? And mm -hmm. in previous generations, previous centuries, certainly, they would have died young, you know, because of mm -hmm. some problem, okay? Some maybe genetic problem or because of some disease or whatever. We're keeping people alive so they can breed, okay? So we mm -hmm. are obeying the command of Christ to slow down evolution, right? If you think about that it. That is so true. Natural selection operates on where you have differential reproductive success, where you have populations where you've got a struggle, you know, where different uh, people will be able to pass on their genes because they're adapted in a slightly better way to that particular mm. environment, okay? So mm. so that's point one, number one. And point number two is a related point, but simply that the size of families is in de decreasing on average in mm -hmm. many parts of the world, okay? So, and right now in Europe, it's actually a real worry for countries like Russia and so on, which has, you know, you, you need to have a, um, a reproduction rate of about 2.1 children per couple in order to keep the population fairly stable, okay? Mm. Uh, and in Russia, it's a lot lower than that, actually, and the family size is really small on average compared to the old days. And if you come back to Victorian England, to Victorian families, you find there are eight kids, there are ten kids, whatever, you know. You'd normally find two or three of those kids would die in childbirth or they would die very young or die, you know, before mm -hmm. reproductive age. And now we're keeping all of those kids alive. So if you look at the family size now, of course, then we don't have that and it's very small. And so you, you no longer have, again, this competition uh, between SIBs in terms of their success, if you like, reproductive success is what the standard language is in the evolutionary process. Because really what's going on in evolution is you're asking the question, how many sets of those particular variant genes are being passed on to successive generations, okay? Yeah. And that, that's what, if you like, is a definition or understanding of this term, reproductive success. Mm -hmm. And then um, the third reason would be simply that we are now a global village. And if you want speciation to occur, normally the way that happens in animals anyway is in reproductively isolated populations. You need to be isolated in some way from intermingling at a genetic level with other populations. Mm. And so, of course, in the old days, you know, that was pretty common. If you look at early human evolution in Africa, then there are early human populations emerging which are separated from each other reproductively. Mm. They never mix for thousands and thousands of years. There's a lot of genetic studies on that right now, how that actually works. But if we look at the present day, it's pretty clear we're a global village. We're all mixed up. People are traveling all the time except during pandemics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, give us a few more months. Yeah, world travel will start again. and then. But the whole mm. world is mixed up genetically. Okay, so you're not going to get a reproductively isolated population in the world today. And so speciation is very, very unlikely in terms of humans developing into something mm -hmm. quite different. Plus, mm -hmm. of course, the environment, uh, the environments to which we're adapted here are, are very similar. Okay, so, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're very adaptable species. We know how to adapt to extreme cold, extreme hot, and so on. Yeah. You can you can have science fiction scenarios if you want to, you know, you can have a population yeah. uh, <laughs> up on Mars, yeah, you know, yeah. if you had a population of Mars living out there, separated, well, let's say 10,000 years, from the human population without any genetic intermingling. Mm. Well, yeah, but still, how are they going to live there? They have to create an environment which is very like the Earth, won't they? It's anywhere you can live on planet yeah. Mars and so right. forth, you know. So that doesn't really get you very far on that discussion mm. either. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Claire, how cool was that? Have you ever heard something like I've that? I've never heard. I have never heard that. It's that is it's blown my mind actually. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just blowing your mind right now. It's so freaking good. <laughs> oh man. Um, um so just as we're just sort of as we're finishing off our podcast, you've we we thought we'd talk about this kind of idea of nature nurture. And you would say that there's an acronym acronym 
uh, D-I-C-I, which would be better to sort of for us to use uh, to replace maybe nature nurture or frame that discussion. What do you want to, why do you want to leave the, the nature nurture kind of idea behind? And what does that, what does that mean? That, that acronym that you're suggesting? Yeah. The phrase nature nurture is still very popular, isn't it? It's used all the time still in um, the media when it's, you know, reporting the latest um, discovery in the area of genetics or something. But if we go back uh, to the 19th century, we find it was actually Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's first cousin, who first really popularized, he didn't invent, but he popularized the phrase nature nurture. In mm. a book actually came out in 1874, it had nature and nurture in the title. And mm. really it was, by the way, Francis Galton, who also invented the word eugenics. And so the whole of the oh. eugenic movement, in a sense, you could track back to Francis Galton in this sense. So now actually he had a very hereditary, I mean, he, he had a big emphasis on heredity as being the key factor in what makes people people. And of course, his, the study he used to do were <laughs> based on men, and it was all men, who were very similar to himself, who were kind of middle class or upper class um, British men, you know, who had the right kind of inheritance. And he tried to do data, get data out of them to show, well, this, this just shows, doesn't it, that it's their nature which is inherited, which is really important. So although he saw a role for nurture, as we now call it, the environment, really for him, nature was on top. Okay. Anyway, that language is a long history, but that language has come down to us and it's still used a lot. The reason I don't like it very much, it's very dichotomous language. Mm, it sort of separates right. humans into two halves almost. Mm -hmm. And so almost like a battlefield sometimes, you know, you've got on one side, you've got our genes, you know, helping to be, us to be what we are. And then the other side, you've got the environment coming in and shaping us and somehow they're in conflict. And I think it's the idea of humanity becoming the center for a conflict between two major forces, which I don't think is very fair on the science. It's not accurate on the science mm -hmm. as we understand it right now. Now, I introduced this acronym DICEY some years ago in a book and um, and it's a bit of a mouthful, so I don't think it's going to replace nature nurture very easily, <laughs> especially when you hear what it stands for. But it's just simply four letters which stand for four words, which I think are quite useful, though, to think about in this kind of discussion. And, and so I'll just quickly, very quickly run through the four words. D is mm. for development. So I think developmental biology is the key, understanding the way in which our genes and environments right back to the fertilized egg right from the beginning there, what we call the zygote, you know, those very early uh, mm. fetuses, is actually um, the key to understanding how the genes and the environment sort of shape together. And that brings us to our second word, I, I is for integrated. So all that, all that information flowing in from all the different directions is all integrated together to build, if you like, or to construct this composite human being, this composite person that we are, this personhood. Um, and so then you come to the C, and C stands for complementary. And the idea is, well, you need to study that with lots of complementary kinds of investigations and language. Mm -hmm. And so we have the language of genetics at one level. We have the language of fetal development, developmental biology. We have the language of environmental inputs. We have the language of epigenetics, how genes are switched on and off. And then, of course, we have the language of cells and the language of organs and, the, and so on. We can go up to the mind, okay? So all of this system, this wonderful system we call a human being, it's all kind of integrated together. But as scientists, we had to kind of break it down. We have to think about it in complementary levels because it, it's really the only way you can do science is to start to break things down into bits. We can't understand the whole, so we have to understand the bits and then try and put it all back together again, if you like, conceptually. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, the I is simply stands for interactionism, the I at the end of Dicey. I is for interactionism, a reminder that all of these different components of the human being are all interacting all of the time at every moment. And in, as a matter of fact, it's actually the interactions which are really important and what emerges mm. out of those interactions. That's really the important story. The problem mm. is in science, we tend to study, as I say, study the components all the time. You know, we study each neuron, we study how yeah. each synaptic connection, we study each molecule, each atom, and so on. And so, of course, we lose sometimes the whole of personhood. And that's where 
but nothing buttery comes into the problem. That is to say, some scientists say we're humans are nothing but, you know, these bits and pieces that we study, okay? What yeah. sometimes called nothing buttery, or more <laughs> formally in philosophy, ontological reductionism, but I like the yeah. phrase nothing buttery. Nothing so, buttery, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's a phrase yeah. you can remember. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you see, if you hear a scientist saying, oh, well, this is nothing but this, and, or it's only this, always be suspicious of that, I think, you know, because... The system as a whole is is just what counts, and it's the system functioning as a whole is what counts, and that comes back to humankind made in the image of God. You know, we are humans made in the image of God. We function with minds and with consciousness and with free will and with moral choices. And we, mm -hmm. it's the person ultimately that matters, isn't it, to each one mm -hmm. of us? So we mustn't lose the personhood. So that's why I like dicey. And yeah. why, well, I had a book came out actually last year called um, Are We Slaves to Our Genes, uh, mm -hmm. Cambridge University Press. And that really mm -hmm. looks at that more carefully and how all of these different factors we've been talking about are integrated together mm. to form human persons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful picture of humans. That makes a, it makes a lot of right? sense. And it's, and yeah, totally. <laughs> of course it does. Of course, I'm not surprised that it makes sense, but it's, um, yeah, that's, um, Dr. Alexander, that's a really, thank you for kind of just, just expanding like all of our, all of the categories of some, and some of these sort of breaking down some of the terms that we use and sort of trying to understand that and ask different questions mm. and kind of broaden, broaden our thinking on all of these things. Um, so thank you for, for the time that you've spent in your professional life and personal life, mm -hmm. sort of nutting through these issues and helping us kind of understand them so that we can... Um, yeah, grow in our understanding of what it means to be human and what it means to be made in yeah. the image of God. So thank you. Thanks for your time with us. Thank um, you for having me and thank you for the great questions. Interesting yeah, discussion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and let me say something here. Every question and every answer uh, Dr. Alexander gave is a lecture in itself, in and of itself. And, and Dr. Alexander had to, you know, stop himself <laughs> From not, you know, going off because he could for hours and hours, and and I and I really appreciate that. It's it's been so, I'm going to use the word fun, so so educational and in simple language, and and thank you for an answering this complicated, huge questions in small chunks, and so so we can all uh, just you know whet our appetite to go read your books and investigate more about Denis events or whatever. There's so much <laughs> so much stuff here, so. I've enjoyed it so much, Dr. Yeah. Alexander. Thank you for this again. Thanks Thank so you much very much. Time. Yeah, and go and read the books. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> we need to make sure that they're at the Regent College bookstore. That's what we need to check. Should double check on that. Hopefully they are. We'll ask them. <laughs> they, they'll be there. Yeah. They'll oh, be I, there. I hope so. Oh, let's yeah. hope. Let's hope. Thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.